Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, who will be part of the CanMed 2020 Conference in Pasadena, California, this September 20th through 22nd. On this episode, we get the chance to talk with our first representative from the safety focus area. Inia Fia is the scientific director at CannaSafe Labs, one of the largest cannabis testing labs in California. If you aren't familiar with what exactly goes on at a cannabis testing lab, you're likely in the majority. As I mentioned in my conversation with Innie, the cannabis testing labs are sort of like the unsung heroes of the cannabis industry. They serve a very important role in ensuring consumer and patient safety, but they rarely get recognized for it. During our conversation, Innie and I discussed the types of tests labs perform in California, what challenges they face being in a regulated market, and how they balance keeping customers happy with also keeping consumers safe. So by the end of this episode, you will hopefully have a much better appreciation for cannabis testing labs. We also get into the testing Innie has performed on the ingredients in vaporizer cartridges in the wake of last year's vaping crisis. We're excited to have Innie as a CanMed presenter this year, and we are also fortunate to have him as a member of our advisory board. He, along with the other advisors, review all the abstracts that were submitted and select the very best to be oral and poster presentations at the event. Our first round of abstract presenters, along with the preliminary schedule, will be announced June 3rd, which is just one week from when this podcast goes live. Be sure to sign up to our email list so that announcement will be delivered straight to your inbox. If you sign up on our podcast page, canmenevents.com slash coffee talk, you will also be entered into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2020 VIP dinner. While you're at canmenevents.com, be sure to also buy your tickets to CanMed 2020. Early bird pricing is available through August 1st. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if the event is postponed due to COVID-19? First, rest assured that we are working closely with the Pasadena Convention Center to make sure we can provide a safe environment for our staff and attendees. As of this recording, the event is still on. But just in case, we have updated our refund policy to provide a 100% refund to any ticket holders in the event that we do reschedule and the new dates cause a conflict. Check out our website for details. Before we get to my conversation with Innie, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, CannaSafe Labs. CannaSafe is proud to be the first fully ISO 17025 accredited cannabis testing lab in the world. It is a full-service testing lab dedicated to relentlessly championing the safe cannabis and hemp movement. Learn more about CannaSafe at csalabs.com. All right, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Inia Fia of CannaSafe Labs. Hey, Inia, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today um, because you come from the testing side of the cannabis industry. And we deal a lot with the, with the testing labs here on the medicinal genomic side. And 
I hope you don't mind me saying, but I really feel like the testing labs are sort of the unsung heroes of the cannabis industry. And I was just telling, <laughs> yes, and I was just telling a colleague earlier that to use a football analogy, I feel like you guys are like the offensive line of the cannabis industry, which unfortunately mm -hmm. means that if you're doing everything right, we don't hear about you guys a lot. But fortunately, when, when things go wrong, that's when we hear about the the testing labs, which I think is really unfortunate because you guys do a lot of great work and have a lot of great contributions to the cannabis industry. But do you, do you feel like my analogy is apt? It's absolutely spot on. Um, you know, it's easy to pick at the negatives when things do go wrong, but forget all the positive and the year long hard work that we put in to ensure consumer safety. Absolutely. And I, for some context, Innie is, of course, the scientific director at CannaSafe Labs out there in California. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of cannabis labs out there in California. I think I was reading an article that said there's, there's about 33 licensed labs in California. So it seems like a pretty, pretty competitive market out there. How do, you guys, how do you guys navigate that? Yes, definitely. Um, probably a lot more now. Um, you know, CannaSave isn't a lab that just began yesterday. Uh, we've been in the business uh, for quite some time now, although it was a smaller lab. Um, being the first lab to be ISO 17025 accredited in cannabis sort of set us apart, and we simply took off from there and continued down that path of, you know, being the go-to lab in the space or being the industry pioneers. Um, so the name, the branding itself is sort of, uh, I guess you could say, sets us apart. You know, when you think of going to the store, you can think of Target, Walgreens, although there are many other drugstores you could go to. Um, but apart from that, we've upheld the scientific uh, excellence in the industry, and we've been on the forefront of every uh, breaking uh, news and, and, and whatnot and new method development. Um, you know, that's allowed us to essentially be able to keep the market share. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned you were the first ISO certified lab in the cannabis space. Is that true? Yes, that right? yes. Back in uh, about 2011, yes, we were the ISO 17025, uh, first ISO 17025 accredited lab in cannabis. You know, calling up the accrediting body and saying, hey, we want to get accredited for cannabis wasn't an easy, easy feed. You know, they just kind of laughed like, really, and this illegal stuff. I mean, given that I wasn't with cannabis at the time, um, but just being able to eventually get that accreditation kind of paved the way for even that industry to realize, hey, there's another sort of niche here that we could tackle. And, and, and kind of it helped legitimize the whole industry. Yeah, I was going to ask, <laughs> what that conversation was like uh, being the first. Oh, oh yeah. I, you know, from what I've heard, it, they pretty much laughed at the call. <laughs> like, wait, you want us to accredit, accredit cannabis? <laughs> what, what do you mean? You know, at that point, it was mostly potency and a couple of contaminant assays. Um, and Cannasave in, in Marietta, California was owned by, you know, well-respected scientists. And, and he wanted to help legitimize this industry from the beginning. Um, eventually, uh, the creating body called us back and decided to give it a shot after some convincing that the lab is a legitimate lab and not just, uh, you know, another cannabis storefront or something. 
So what's a typical day like at Canis Ace Labs? Oh, well, uh, you know, you come in and hit the ground running. Canis Ace Labs being, you know, the number one market shareholder in the space is very busy. <laughs> we have a variety of uh, staff groups. I mean, from our marketing to account executives to the samplers with a fleet of cars. And then, of course, the lab staff, there's the admin staff. Uh, we employ over 150 people in this space. So um, it's quite busy. So you're constantly going around making sure that this machine, this well-oiled machine is running smoothly. Of course, that's not always the case as with any business. Um, but we've put people in strategic positions uh, to make sure that everything's being communicated effectively. And, of course, our customers come first so we have a huge customer service team um, that we are constantly in contact with to make sure they are getting their needs met and i sort of you know bounce in between all those areas um to make sure that you know uh whatever wherever i need it i'm there excellent so how many samples do you guys manage to process with uh, you know 150 people working uh, what I imagine is probably around the clock. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're pretty much working around the clock. And I mean, of all of those 150 people, probably about half of them are actual analytical lab staff and the rest are sales and other ancillary positions. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, we know, without giving up the exact number, it's quite sure. a bit. Uh, we're in the hundreds, uh, wow. so anywhere from 100 to 200 samples a day. Yeah, and then you mentioned when you guys first started that it was mostly potency and a, and a few contaminants, but I know that the regulations in California have gotten quite more stringent since then. So what is sort of the battery of tests that a, an average sample needs to go through? Oh, yeah. So, of course, uh, back in, in uh, early 2000s, um, yeah, it was really no regulations up until about two, three years ago when the real regs it with the creation of the DCC and um, and Macrisa, but um, we're talking about potency, pesticides, uh, terpenes, if appropriate, the contaminant assays such as heavy metals, microbial, and when we're talking about microbial, we're talking about um, the Aspergillus species, shigatoxin uh, producing E. coli, and uh, pathogenic salmonella. Um, there's water activity tests and also moisture on flour, residual solvents as well. So a typical flour would have to go through essentially those complete battery of tests and have to pass those stringent limits to be able to be put on the market. Excellent. And what percentage, give or take, do you think actually gets through and, and gets to, to the shelf? How, how many samples are you are failing? Well, you know, it's funny because we've been doing some trending data, um, uh, which we'll be putting out shortly. We've already put some out, but we're looking back at the Canisave as it exists today in LA when it was opened back in the beginning of Gen uh, January of 2018 or so. And, you know, about a quarter of the product that were coming through or more were failing for wow. pesticides and, and whatnot. So it was a learning period for people who had to now come into the light um, and, and learn to deal with this regulation, they had to learn which pesticides not to use and how to grow without them. So uh, products were failing about a quarter to a third. But recently, um, 
you know, not an exact figure, but there's about 10% failure rate for, you know, the various assays. So uh, the manufacturers have really learned and upped their game to be able to grow cleanly without pesticides or, or, or pathogenic organisms and also without introducing things like heavy metals, which generally vape cards would fail for, mostly because of hardware. Wow, so that's great. So things are trending in the right direction. The, the manufacturers are getting better. That's good to hear. Yeah, the manufacturers are definitely getting better. You know, we've been leading that effort in education, making sure that, you know, instead of just failing somebody, we're helping educate the whole community. We're educating our clients how to better uh, uh, produce clean products and, uh, and avoid some of the pitfalls we've seen. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned education because if, if anyone follows Canisafe on social media, you'll see that you guys are very dedicated to to educating the market on, you know, whether it be testing or just the, the science behind cannabis. And it's really a great follow. So if you're not following Canisafe, definitely... Uh, definitely do that because you guys are putting out some great content. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, we've been making sure that our community, uh, we have a very big social media presence. So we're making sure that our community is well informed. Um, after all, the regulations do not work if people are not following them or people don't know what to look for. Um, making sure you're educated about, you know, asking about certificate of analysis and what sort of uh, contaminants should you be looking for in your cannabis product, you know, especially for people with certain conditions who should not be ingesting certain uh, contaminants. So just making sure that, a well, uh, that you're a well-informed consumer, not just a consumer, but the manufacturers like I spoke on before. I think it's a very important aspect of this community in that in order to, uh, you know, in order for all boats to rise in the tide and come into the light, we have to be well-informed. Yeah, I think that's so right. And, and as far as educating the consumer, you, I mean, we have to remember that a lot of these consumers aren't just consumers, they're patients. And like you alluded to, there's certain considerations they need to, to take, um, whether they're immunocompromised or have some other vulnerabilities that they need to really be aware of what's in their product and make sure that it's tested and performing in the right way. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, there's something I strongly believe in and that all labs in this industry, all cannabis labs should be joining efforts to make sure the consumer is protected to make sure that we are all on the up and up. Um, it's very important, uh, like you mentioned, for immunocompromised individuals who are using this uh, for cancer therapy or whatnot. Um, you know, you when you ingest cannabis, there's different routes of administration. So while some of these contaminants may be higher level in other food products, uh, chances are you're inhaling certain chemicals and, you know, that not enough has been studied about it to be able to speak on whether that route of administration is more detrimental or not. But one thing we know for a fact is if it's not going through the digestive system, chances are it is more detrimental than, uh, than not. So it's important that people are aware of this. Yeah, especially when so much of the, the narrative that's out there about cannabis is how, is how safe it is. Because when you're really looking at you know, THC or CBD and how there's never really been an overdose of, of these compounds, you, you assume that, oh, it's safe. I don't need to worry about it. But like you said, there are these additional contaminants that could be present that you, you really need to be aware of. And that's why 
labs like yours are, are so important. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that was recently in the news um, was the whole issue with, with the vape crisis or, or the vape um, situation. And I know that you and, and the folks at Canisafe were doing some research into that. I was hoping that you could share what you found. Yeah, you know, when the vape crisis broke, uh, we jumped on it because it was a big consumer concern. Um, people were coming to us, hey, what do you suggest? Where can we go? What do we do? So we jumped right on it to uh, continue to instill that uh, consumer confidence in the industry and make sure that the whole industry is not taken down by a few bad actors. And, um, you know, we went into the quote unquote black market and purchased product and started doing the testing ourselves before the CDC was able to verify that it was vitamin E acetate. You know, I quickly jumped on, uh, on instruments and developed the assay to look for vitamin E acetate. And, you know, it was quite surprising quickly finding out uh, in our first set of assays that our first set of uh, testing that there were huge levels of vitamin E acetate in this product over 50% in some cases. So people were just unscrupulously cutting uh, the product with this, you know, thickening agent or whatnot. And not only that, but there were high levels of several pesticides along with, you know, not actually meeting uh, labeled THC claims. Most of these products were labeled 80 to 90% THC, but you only found that they contain about 10 to 20% while the majority of it was vitamin E acetate and other uh, cutting agents and contaminants. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's certainly scary. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it was really unfortunate. After that first set of assays, we really decided to dig a little deeper and go into what else may we be able to find in, in, in these illicit products and actually compare them to legal products as well. And, we looked at things like some other cutting agents or, you know, what's the effect of temperatures and flavors and even other contaminants such as metals. Um, running more of a full scan type of study onto what other, uh, what you would refer to as a harmful or potentially harmful contaminants such as carbonyls. Um, so we did a lot of work on that. I don't know if you've seen the paper out there. Yeah, I, I did get a chance to, to review it before we, before we jumped on the call here. Um, but I mean, I guess it, it shouldn't be a, a huge surprise that, you know, the black market product's not going to be as safe as things that are going through your lab. Um, but I mean, especially with the, with the vape cartridges, it being sort of a, a newer form of uh, a newer delivery system for the product, um, it's certainly introducing a lot more variables, a lot more dangerous contaminants to the consumer. You mean you're completely right. It, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. Honestly, I do not believe that the characters that were putting this product out there um, had ill intent. Okay. I think it was lack of information, lack of research, lack of, I don't know, scientific study. Because people will be thinking, oh, it's vitamin E. Of course, this is useful. It's a necessary nutrient. And people use it all the time, topically ingesting it but nobody thought about the fact that, hey, what about inhaling this? What could it possibly do? And, you know, these people were finding good ways to cut corners. Of course, they were putting humans' lives at risk by using pesticide-laden uh, products. 
you know, but as far as the vitamin E acetate, I do not believe that that was ill intent. Um, definitely the pesticides and, and, and other contaminants that were in there um, could be seen as such. Yeah. Well, and another thing it did was it really highlighted what another thing what we probably all know is that the black market is still out there and still thriving. Um, and I don't know what, what do we do to sort of try to reduce that? Let's put you on the spot. You know, but. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's hard because it's more of grayish. So there's the black, black market, quote unquote, and then there's the other market, which are just, let's say the non-legal market. These are people who've been in the industry, have been doing things right and haven't acquired a license yet and have to continue making a living, right? So they're making great products and putting it out there. They just don't have a, a BCC license or whatnot that are probably in the process of getting that license. And of course, there's those folks that just want to do whatever they can to make quick buck in their kitchen and will cut with whatever they can. So um, I think, you know, definitely getting people as a license as quickly as possible for those that are trying to get licensed is key for the state to make sure that that's done as efficiently as possible. And then really going after the bad actors that are, you know, not in the process of trying to get a license or not interested in it that are just cooking whatever in the kitchen, you know, those bad actors have to be removed from the scene. Um, so it, it, it's, it's tough to tackle that and sort of see who to go after. But I believe that if the state does their best to get people who are applying for license as quickly as possible so that they can come into the light and make sure that the, you know, they're branded well, the products are tested, a company with a COA, um, it would really help uh, the whole industry. But I think it's, you know, like I'm saying, I think it's more than just a simple uh, black market, more of gray area, different shades in there. <laughs> yeah. Now, is getting a license in California particularly difficult? I don't believe it's difficult, but I think uh, there may be some lack of efficiency in the process um, in terms of how quickly people are able to get licensed and even education on what you need to do to get a license. A lot of people we found are still not educated on the licensing process, which steps do you need to take, how you know what what municipalities are accepting licenses, or um, there is a lot of lack of education out there for people being able to acquire licenses quickly and efficiently. So I think that has to be tackled first. Excellent. Well, and while we're kind of on the, on the topic of, you know, the regulated market, you, I mean, your, your business being a testing lab is definitely dependent on, on different regulations. And we mentioned before that California recently came out with, with regulations with the BCC. Uh, a few years ago, where before there there weren't many. Um, so, what are your feelings on sort of what you're required to test? Is it uh, is it enough? Would you do you think it's overly um, scrupulous? Kind of. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I thoroughly believe that regulations make the world go around. You know. Uh, People may may whine at speed limits, but you know speed limits are there for a reason, and they make us all safer. Um, now, interestingly, I joined cannabis in directly in a highly regulated market. So I joined cannabis back in about 20, 2013, 2014 in Nevada when they just introduced a set of regulations that pretty much 
uh, all states have followed on afterwards, you know, set of regulations encompassing pretty much what California has. So I don't know any worse than that. Uh, you know, so for me, I thoroughly believe in the current regulations. Um, there are, of course, certain things that California did a little differently that I don't necessarily enjoy. Um, for instance, the packaging. So California says you have to test product in its final packaging. Okay, that's great to keep people in line. However, what they don't realize is we're looking at things like vape carts. So you have to acquire up about 0.35% of a certain amount of vape card based on batches. You know, that's just an estimate, but generally hundreds of carts based on whatever batch the manufacturers produce. So for instance, if I go to pick up a sample and the manufacturers produce, uh, you know, thousands of, of, of vape cards, I may have to pick up hundreds of vape cards and I have to come into the lab and open all of those. You know, these are fused together. They're metal pieces that you have to crack open. They're all in their packaging, in their cardboard boxes. They all contain lithium batteries or nickel batteries or whatever. And it's just a whole amount of, a whole lot of waste that happens. So now you have to worry about recycling the batteries from the vape cards, recycling the metals, um, throwing away the cardboard boxes. You know, if we're caring about the environment here, this is not really the way to go about it. So we produce a ton of waste in the lab just because we're sampling final product packaging. I think that's one piece of legislation I, I wish could be redone in a way that, you know, you have the track and trace system, use it well so that we can sample. If you're making vape cards, you have a, a gallons of oil. The lab can go and sample that finished product at that point and do the testing, and then the manufacturer can fill afterwards. But having them fill and then having the lab spend all this effort and introducing all this waste, uh, you know, it's it's unlike California. So I'm surprised at that piece of uh, legislation. Wow, and that's that's going to be a huge risk for the manufacturer as well. I mean, to basically go through the entire production process of of packaging everything. That, um, with the reality that it could potentially fail and you'd have to scrap all of that, that's got to be, oof. That's oh, tough. certainly. It's happened quite a bit where they've gone through the testing and actually failed. And, you know, now they're having to sort of recollect their product from those packages, you know, tear boxes, open up vape cards and recollect the product and maybe try to remediate it. Um, but that's why we try to educate our clients in, 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 in R&D testing. Hey, mm -hmm. get it tested immediately so that you know what you're getting into. Get your hardware tested because what has happened is you can sample that finished product and it's clean and then you stick it into some bad hardware and metals are leaching into your final product now. So now you found out that, hey, after I've packaged 10,000 vape cards, they're now all failing for lead because you put it into untested uh, uh, carts. So it, again, part of education is working with our clients on making sure every piece of in-process material is tested so they can get to a final clean product without you know, any surprises. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> and I suppose that's sort of a, um, sort of a vote for, for testing that final product. Like you said that you know, once you introduce it into packaging or you put the, the oil into the vape cart, you could be introducing some new contaminants. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, that makes sense. It would be important for the manufacturer to kind of be testing 
multiple times throughout the entire process so they can kind of really zero in on on where the potential failure point could be. Most well, definitely, I mean, it is important that, you know, some manufacturers may say, well, why would I spend all this money, you know, doing all this in-process testing? Well, you think about what kind of money will you be wasting to remediate or the kind of losses you'll be taking if you do fail. So it, it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that you test in-process material. Excellent. And so you mentioned that you, you got into the cannabis space um, in, in 2013. What were, you, what were you doing before cannabis? What was your pre-cannabis life like? Uh, pre-cannabis life, I was working at uh, a few pharmaceutical companies, uh, including uh, Merck and Abbott Labs and Life Technologies. And right before cannabis, I was actually in uh, nutraceutical at a vitamin manufacturing company in Las Vegas, Nevada. And, um, you know, it, it was enjoyable. I guess I've always been in this trend of, uh, of, of uh, I don't know what you want to call it, wellness. <laughs> so it was the next natural jump. You know, you know, I love to take vitamins to stay healthy, but I also recognize the benefits of cannabis. So I've always been in that uh, sort of industry and, and, and the QC testing part of those industries. So jumping from uh, nutraceutical testing, QC testing for consumer safety to QC testing cannabis for consumer safety was right off uh, my uh, wheel there, if you want to say so. Yeah, no, it seems like a logical uh, job. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right off my wheelhouse. <laughs> right. And so it's interesting. So how does the, the safety testing in QC differ in, in a nutraceutical or vitamin um, scenario? as opposed to cannabis, like, do they have third party testing labs that need to test the product before it hits the shelves um, in that space as well? You know, it's funny because can, uh, a nutraceutical or vitamin stays sort of a similar problem that I think some cannabis is now facing in that they had, or, or let's just say before, before there were rules in cannabis, nutraceuticals were sort of a free for all um, before they became regulated by FDA and other bodies, um, and people could, you know, make vitamin C in their living room, have a label printer, and stick it on and sell it. Um, but luckily, the company I was working in Las Vegas had an in-house uh, testing lab, which is where I was working at. But they also send out product for third-party testing, so they were doing potency and other contaminant testing, both in incoming raw material and finished product. So it works similarly, um, testing the, for the efficacy, the potency, microbials, and heavy metals. Not necessarily pesticides, unfortunately, um, but it's sort of interesting to see how cannabis has evolved past what you know industries like nutraceuticals, which have been around for quite some time, where they're at now. The only difference is the FDA does audit nutraceutical uh, uh, companies, but they do not in cannabis. Right. Obviously, because cannabis isn't, isn't federally legal yet. Um, exactly. But how do you see the kind of testing landscape changing if and when that, that finally does happen? You know, I believe it will be uh, the same set of rules, um, maybe different um, action limits for different analytes, but um, it'll become federally regulated by the FDA, you'll now have 
the FDA coming in to audit your processes, uh, not just you know whether you're following your own SOPs, but making sure um, everything from top to bottom, you know your consumer complaints and whatnot, that your your marketing practices. I mean, they audit everything. So I see it being a little more stringent in that sense. But as far as what assays are actually being done, they will most likely remain the same or similar. Now, now do you feel like there's anything that labs should be testing for that they're just not testing for now, whether it be because it's not mandated or the customer doesn't, doesn't want it? Hmm. You know, it depends which side you're looking at because we know that cannabis contains so many other nutrients, phytonutrients, uh, vitamins, and, and, and um, antioxidants. It would be nice to start to quantify those things. Um, on the other end of maybe contaminant assays, I think it's well covered as far as the contaminant assays, but perhaps um, expanding the pesticide scope um, to be more open-ended. You know, there are hundreds, I think over 800 pesticides out there. And you look at California testing 60 of them. Granted, there are no uh, rules for applications of any pesticides on, on cannabis, at least in California, but I would like to see that expanded because as uh, I, I guess if I were a grower, you're telling me, hey, there is residue, residue limits for this 66. Well, there's hundreds more other pesticides mm. with maybe similar functionality out there that I could use that the labs would not be looking for. So in the end of the day, in, in an effort to ensure consumer safety, it would be better to expand that scope. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of that that documentary, what was it, Icarus, with um, mm. when they were, they were testing for performance-enhancing drugs that, you know, as soon as you identify one, you come up with an assay and you start testing for it, then, you know, the cheaters are just going to choose something else uh, to beat oh, the course. test. So I'm sure it's a cat and mouse game very similar to that. Of course. Of course. And I understand some people may not agree with that statement, my statement of expanding the scope, but you have to think about it. If we're all about wellness and consumer safety, it should not be a problem to expand that scope. The only people who would be really worried about this are, you know, maybe people who are doing some unscrupulous things. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. And you, and you also mentioned maybe expanding the different cannabinoids or terpenes that the, the labs are reporting on. Are there any, <laughs> are there any in particular that, that pique your interest that you think, you know, could be the next, the next big compound that these cultivators or manufacturers are going to try to be developing products around? You know, I, you know, I know there was a recent uh, discovery of uh, THCP and, 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 and uh, uh, or so, but you know, it's such residual levels of it. It's hard to say because there are lot more cannabinoids available in the plant, but they're at such minute levels, um, it's almost inconsequential testing for them um, until their efficacy is proven at a certain level. Um, I, I see maybe more testing around other phytonutrients, um, you know, vitamin K, for example, or, or, or quercetin and camphorol, some of those antioxidants, mm -hmm. some anthocyanins, which are 
definitely available, especially in some of your more colorful varieties, uh, cultivars. Um, those would be useful and finding ways that we can preserve those or different routes of extracting those, whether it be fresh flower or whatnot, but there's definitely a lot of nutrients that are being missed by just sticking to a certain either extraction or a certain mode of use uh, as an in inhaling. Right, definitely. I think that plant has a lot more benefits to offer as a fresh plant itself. Absolutely. And, you know, to bring it all back to CanMed, that's why, you know, that's why we're, we're so happy with, with the model that we have here, because we're bringing together people from all different sides of the, of the industry where we have sort of the research scientists who are trying to discover these lesser cannabinoids or, or compounds to see what sort of medical efficacy they could have, bringing that information to the, the physicians or the healthcare professionals who are treating the patients, um, but also bringing it to the cultivators who may want to try to develop some new novel strains that are going to be producing these compounds. And then folks like yourself who are going to have to be developing the methods to either test for those or if you're more on the extraction manufacturer side, how do we extract those, those compounds out of the plant? So we like to think that we're bringing in all the people necessary so that we can get the most out of this plant so we can, we can benefit the patients. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, and you know, last year at CanMed, I was really impressed with what was happening with, uh, with uh, I, I, I forget who the main owner of the company is, but I believe Raphael Machulam is a, a partner in that with their new discovery of sort of a methylated uh, cannabinoid uh, that was found to be uh, highly more efficient or, or, or useful or bioavailable. I should say, than the actual cannabinoid by itself. So I see things like that happening. Simply adding a methyl group, an ethyl group to the cannabinoid allows it to uh, penetrate the cell better or have more bioavailability. So those are really exciting works that make this industry um, exciting for me and you know make me glad to be in this every day and see how people are introducing this novel idea that are only going to set us further apart as a legitimate uh, industry and medicine. Absolutely. It's, cer it's certainly an exciting thing to be a part of when you realize that we're only really scratching the surface of what um, this plant can do. Um, not even, yeah. I mean, to even look beyond, um, you know, pharmaceutical or, or ingesting it. But when you think about hemp and all the possibilities that has for, yeah, you know, producing textiles or, or different things like that. So it's just, um, it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. And we're excited to have you, Annie, be a part of CanMed this year. I know you're serving on the advisory board and uh, we're really excited to have you out there in Pasadena this September. Yes, sir. I'm definitely looking forward to it. You know, it's one of my favorite conferences. There's a great variety of talks based around medicine. It's just a high level uh, conference, uh, very few of, uh, of conferences like that. So I always enjoy being at CanMate, so I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Annie, for taking the time, and um, we'll see you out there. All right. Thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Inia Fia. 
check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And please also check out the CannaSafe website. Next week, we welcome our keynote presenter in the cultivation focus area, Seth Crawford of Oregon CBD. Seth and his team at Oregon CBD have applied large-scale breeding techniques combined with the latest genetic sequencing technology to create some truly amazing THC-free varieties for the hemp market. If you've ever been curious about how cannabis and hemp breeders create a new strain, you don't want to miss this episode. That episode will drop June 10th, two weeks from this one. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2020 VIP dinner and keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2020. If social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening on a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And if you want to leave us a five-star review, that'd be great too. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk. Thank you.